This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, March 28th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Callums. Later today on Ozarks at Large, assistance with the end of life. I'll talk with Allison Nail Malone about her work as a death doula. And Randy Wilburn, the host of the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast, discusses the present and the future of the region with Victor Dover, an urban planner. First, the Fayetteville Fire Department now has an incentive plan offering benefits to encourage retention and higher education within the department. The Fayetteville City Council approved the resolution to develop a plan this past week. Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope reports a couple of departments in northwest Arkansas cities already had some form of incentive benefits. About 122 firefighters work in one of eight stations in Fayetteville's fire department. And Brad Hardin, the city's fire chief, says they respond to about 13,000 events in a year. Hardin started as a Fayetteville firefighter in 2000 and became a fire chief in 2019. Um, you know, I just, uh, it was, I wanted to be part of something bigger than, than myself and make a difference in life. The city of Fayetteville conducts a market pay study every other year, comparing the fire branch to five other departments. This year, it looked into departments in Bentonville, Rogers, Jonesboro, Springdale, and Lawrence, Kansas. Of these towns, four areas offer longevity pay. Three have education pay, and four provide certification assignment pay. Fayetteville's new program includes these incentives. Um, education is very important to me. It's important, especially in the in the higher ranks, that you have an education. So that was the um, you know just kind of some incentive to get people to do that. We've got a hazmat and ARF, and then a few different certification pays. The reason for those are that, or two reasons. One is for recruitment and retention in those positions. Um, and, and then second is the extra workload. So all of those positions, they do more than what they're just the average uh, firefighter does. They have to do a lot more training. The department's new program has a $404,000 price tag, which will come from the city's general revenue budget. Hardin says the department has a good retention rate. And as far as the the biggest struggle we see today is just the number of people. We're in a very competitive market uh, as far as the firefighters go. We compete with all of these other fire departments here. All of the cities are growing. They're always adding people every year. And so we all have the same hiring pool. We pick from those same group of people. And so being competitive is very important. The department usually hires people biannually around its spring and fall training programs, and Hardin says it seldomly fills all its vacant positions. This past hiring period, he says the department had 13 slots opened and employed 10 people. Um, hopefully, uh, with, with the increase in pay and the uh, retention and that kind of stuff, and, and maybe it'll just, I don't know, I, we just don't see as many people applying as what we used to see. Most fire departments in Arkansas are volunteer operations. Fayetteville Fire Department is a career operation. About 4.4% of fire departments in the state are made up of fully paid career firefighters, according to the U.S. Fire Administration. Meanwhile, volunteer departments make up about 84% of units in the state, according to the administration. Hardin says a person could earn more if they have additional education or certifications. 
Hardin says many firefighters joined the city's department for similar reasons why he became a firefighter almost 23 years ago. Uh, the most attractive thing I, I think that, that might get missed, you know, we've spent so much time talking about pay and benefits and all these other things, but it's really the intrinsic value that the, that the people, uh, there's not many jobs out there. Now, while you may not get rich doing this job, uh, not many jobs that you're going to, you know, uh, save somebody's life or, or forever change the trajectory of somebody's life had you not been there. Uh, so it's a big deal, uh, and it means a lot to our people. For Ozarks at Large and the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 1 at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Anna Pope. It is Tuesday. It sure is, Kyle. The final Tuesday of March. Mm-hmm. April will arrive this weekend. Still plenty to do in March. Yes. Tomorrow morning, there is a live music and performance arts uh, virtual panel. Uh, it's a panel discussion about um, the state of live music and performance in Northwest Arkansas. This is put on by the Northwest Arkansas Council. Yes, yes. And I mean, you know, when you look at the lineup of shows that Walmart Amp has been able to bring in in the last, you know, two years, you see all the performers who are coming to Georgia's, even the smaller venues across the area. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's going to be an exciting conversation. That's tomorrow morning at 9. You do have to register. Go to the Northwest Arkansas Council website to do that. It's hosted by the hardest working man in Northwest Arkansas. That is a fact. Randy Wilburn, <laughs> yes. who has actually... You know, like six doors down. Literally working hard. (laughs) Yes. Now, the NCAA gymnastic regionals, gymnastics regionals will begin tomorrow. But for Arkansas, it doesn't begin till Thursday. Mm -hmm. They'll be in Norman, Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Arkansas is ranked number 17. They will be going up against Ohio State, number 16, and the host, number one in the country, Oklahoma Sooners. And one other school, there's a gymnastics, you wouldn't call it a play in, a tumble in, a a (laughs) vault in. Between two programs, that takes place the first night, and then they go on to join the three ranked teams. Yes. I can't watch gymnastics. It's too scary for me. (laughs) Britt Taylor, great singer-songwriter, is at George's tomorrow night. And also tomorrow in Tahlequah, the Dr. Isabel Baker Memorial Lectureship in Women's Studies at Northeastern University in Tahlequah. Dr. Kimberly Lee, who's on the faculty there, will present Singing Native Women's Realities, Buffy, St. Marie, and Purifay. And that is tomorrow afternoon on the NEU campus. And finally, the black-owned bus tour that starts today in Fayetteville, mm-hmm. Rogers, Bentonville tomorrow. KUAF's spring fundraiser is coming up, although it will sound a bit different this year. We've listened to your feedback and have shortened our live on-air fundraiser from five days to only three. And we've introduced a new way of supporting KUAF this spring through a business membership. Business memberships are ideal for companies looking to support public radio and reach new public radio listeners, especially those moving to the area looking for local services. Starting with a tax-deductible gift of $500, business member names will be read once per day for the two weeks of our spring and fall fundraisers this year. Plus, they'll be listed on our webpage for one full year. Become a business member before March 31st to have your business's name read each day during our spring and fall fundraisers in 2023. Learn more about business memberships at KUAF.com business membership or go to supportKUAF.com. Later this hour, giving growth in Northwest Arkansas some serious thought. You know, we're living through a great national retail real estate meltdown. Before COVID, that was already true. And then with with the changing habits of not just where people work, but how they buy things, that will probably continue to put pressure 
on the owners of that land to think of more creative ways to use it. This week, Randy Wilburn, host of the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast, talks with Victor Dover, an urban planner. He talks about the second coming of the great American smaller town later this hour on Ozarks at Large. Support for KUAF is provided by Little Wing Productions, presenting An Evening with Amy Grant at the Auditorium in Eureka Springs, April 1st. Hits include Simple Things, Takes a Little Time, Lucky One, and more. Tickets available at tickets.thundertix.com. The Clinton School of Public Service is now accepting applications for its online degree program. Clinton School Online is built for public service professionals looking to advance their careers without relocating or disrupting their personal lives. More information can be found at clintonschool.uasys.edu or by calling the Office of Admissions at 501-683-5228. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders is backing a legislative package that will finance the construction of a new 3,000-bed prison and increase prison sentences for the most violent crimes to 100 percent of sentences levied against those offenders. The governor announced the legislative package yesterday. She says the cost to build the prison will be $470 million with an annual operating budget of $31 million. The judicial reforms are included in Senate Bill 495, the Protect Arkansas Act, which was filed yesterday. As the end of the 2023 general session of the Arkansas legislature draws near, state lawmakers are looking toward crafting a balanced budget. That's of particular concern for Republican Senator Jonathan Dismang of Beebe, who chairs the legislature's Joint Budget Committee. Speaking on KARK Channel 4's Capital View program this weekend, Dismang said he's seeking to limit the amount of growth in this year's state budget, also called the Revenue Stabilization Act, or RSA. That's needed, he says, in order to foot the bill for tax cuts, as well as new spending on education and criminal justice. And that's why it's so critical that we maintain as little as growth as we can in this current RSA, because we know that there are some big ticket items outside of sentencing reform that we're going to see, and that's the education freedom accounts. Those won't truly hit our budget until year three. Uh, so there's multiple things we need to be planning for that we've set in motion or will be set in most in this session. Um, and and you know, really what you need to look at there is, I think, how does that impact your tax cuts and what you're looking to do big picture? Senator Dismang says the state could end up spending roughly $150 million for the first year of Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders' Arkansas Learns Education Bill and as much as $300 million or more to build new prison bed space. The legislative session is scheduled to end on April 7th but could be extended with lawmakers' approval. A bill regulating when teachers can use a student's preferred name and pronouns passed the Arkansas House of Representatives yesterday. Josie Lenora with our partner station KUAR has more. The Given Name Act would prohibit teachers from calling a student by their preferred name or pronouns without written permission from their parents. It would also allow teachers to opt out of using a student's preferred name or pronoun. If passed, parents could sue teachers who use a name other than the one the student was assigned at birth. The bill's sponsor, Republican Representative Wayne Long, said this would keep parents involved in their children's choices. Some educational professionals are being compelled to use pronouns or names that are inconsistent with the student's biological sex. When this compelled speech violates the person's conscience, it's unconstitutional. Long said he could only think of one teacher who claimed they were concerned about being forced to use a student's preferred pronouns. 
Democratic lawmakers said the bill would likely be overturned as a First Amendment violation. Representative Nicole Clowney said the bill targets the transgender community and opens up teachers to litigation if they call a student by a nickname. Or those teachers um, are living under the very real threat of a lawsuit by any parent who chooses that maybe they'd like to make a little bit of money. The bill passed on a vote of 65 to 18 and now goes to the Senate. Another bill passed the House later in the day, allowing teachers to opt out of implicit bias training. In Little Rock, I'm Josie Lenora. Lynn Wasson, a longtime journalist and community promoter, is the interim executive director of the Fort Smith Visitors and Convention Bureau. She'll take on the role after the resignation of former director Tim Jacobson. He left the office on March 20th after taking the job in late 2020. Wasson was a driving force behind the magazine and website Entertainment Fort Smith for 22 years. Talk Business and Politics reports sales tax revenue increased 13.6% in the March report. Total sales tax revenue for the four largest cities in northwest Arkansas were more than $8.6 million. For the first three months of the 2023 calendar year, the combined city's sales tax collection is slightly more than $27.5 million, an increase of 11.29% from the first three months of 2022. And the Smashing Pumpkins are coming to the Walmart Amp in Rogers. The band will be at the Amp on August 16th with opening acts Interpol and Rival Sons. The concert was announced this morning. Tickets go on sale Friday. Do you know the elevation of Centerton? No. Do you struggle when asked in which county Little Flock resides? Benton, right? Benton. I think so. Yeah, yeah. The Shiloh Museum of Ozark History presents Ozark Trivia Night March 30th at 7 p.m. Participants can enjoy a locally crafted drink and be eligible for prizes for best themed tables and raffle drawings. Teams and individuals are welcome. For tickets, shilohmuseum.org. Appleseed's Kitchen Table Dinner Series continues April 1st with the Ozark Spring Dinner featuring chefs Case DeGario and Bill Schwab. These dinners aim to bridge the gap often felt between the chef and diners in a typical dining environment, thereby creating a deeper connection to the food on the plate. For tickets, appleseedsnwa.org. KUAF's The Lunch Hour is back. And this month, we're bringing you the soulful sounds of Lovemore Records' very own Sarah Lilly, along with the tasty and savory foods of Bites and Bowls. You don't want to miss this month's Lunch Hour, happening this Friday, March 31st from noon to 1. The Lunch Hour featuring Sarah Lilly and food from Bites and Bowls, this Friday, March 31st, noon to 1. We'll see you there. This is Ozarks at Large. It's one of life's inevitabilities. It's actually the one big inevitability, death. Handling the end of life for ourselves or a loved one can be a different experience for each of us. Allison Nail Malone is a guide for people dealing with an end-of-life matter. She's an end-of-life or death doula. This month, we invited Allison to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to talk about her work. We don't do any medical unless that death doula is like an RN or has been a medical professional. So we're talking um, sort of 
emotional help, spiritual mm-hmm. help, things like that. Yeah, yeah, the emotional, spiritual, mental, sometimes physical too, because it can be a companion role up until the point of death. Um, it's a planner role where we'll sit with the family and or the individual and talk about what are their end of life wishes, their planning, also legacy planning. So what is it that they want to leave behind for their family or their community, that sort of thing. I'm glad you brought up legacy planning because when I went to the website, which is? MyMysteria.com. When I went there, I, I saw the tab about legacy planning. And this, I, I think a lot of us think when we think of death and legacy, it's it's financial, but that's not necessarily legacy planning. No, no. It, it, that's certainly a component of it. But I'll give you a great example. A former client of mine was a single mother who had three children under the age of 16 and has a term, had a terminal illness. And so... She wanted to make sure that when each child had a milestone in their life, that she would be there with them. So she created a video like blog. She created it. We created a, a scrapbook journal so that it had pictures and sayings and advice, and that there could be times when they just miss her that they could play you know, her voice, or she loved to sing songs, so she would sing certain songs on recording so that they can come back to that. What was that experience like? Because I can't imagine having a terminal illness and know that you have three minor children mm-hmm. who won't have their mother, and she was a single mom. Yeah. What was the experience like for you and to the best of your ability to remember for her when you were creating these legacy items? I mean, it, it is definitely heart-moving. Um, and, you know, I have a lot of people ask me, like, how can you separate yourself from the emotion of it? And I don't. Um, and so, one, being able to be a part is such an honor. It's a sacred place to sit with her and to have these conversations with her. And it was very difficult for her. I mean, as you shared and mentioned, like, there's these th- three young ones that are going to, she knows are going to be without her. I think the other piece that made it a little bit easier is that there was a community of people around the children, around her and her family, so that they could all come together. So we also tried to make this a community gathering so that the children knew that there was the support of people physically there once she passed. There can be instances where you know the end of life is coming for you or a loved one. Mm-hmm. But there are also sudden deaths. Mm-hmm. Can can you have a role in helping people after a death that was unexpected? Absolutely. A lot of end-of-life doulas also, like myself, uh, help families and individuals navigate the grief. So there's the anticipatory grief. So that's the grief that comes before the death event. If it's a, um, a death that is sudden, then there's all these decisions that have to be made, um, all these conversations that have to be had, plus also navigating their grief. And so an end-of-life doula would be fantastic to come in and support them. They don't take the place of a counselor, but many of them do, like I do, is coaching them through that and also getting them in touch with their resources. Because again, very similar to when my dad passed at the end, I just like, I couldn't think of all the decisions to make. And so um, had I had a doula there with me, it would have made it so much easier so that I could be present for my grief and the people around me that were grieving um, because I had someone there that was a little bit more objective and they could help navigate with me. Right. I, there are so many decisions that have to be made pretty quickly, yes. whether it's a funeral service mm-hmm. or helping a, a widow or a widower 
with Social Security or things like that, yeah. that that it is – you've got to be of two minds. Mm-hmm. You're sad, but it's also Tuesday and you have to go to the Social Security <laughs> office, right? I have to go buy groceries right. and I have to do these life event things. And a death doula can really be help, be a support for that and to also just even help run some of those errands or um, who could we also reach out to to delegate some of these tasks to and, and be a mediator for that person that is experiencing that, that, that deep grief. How did you find – this to become a death doula. Yeah. So my background is 20 plus years in human resources, executive leadership and coaching. So to a certain extent, a somewhat of a transition, very similar transition of supporting people and being present for people. But I didn't even know this was a career, like an option for me. Like many people um, during COVID, I lost my my father. So in July of 2020, my dad died from complications of uh, COVID and some of the other illnesses that he faced. And during that time, for most people, because of COVID, and we didn't know what all that entailed, most of the time he was by himself and he was alone. And it wasn't until he was in hospice that I could spend time with him. And majority of hospice facilities have a program called No One Dies Alone or NODA. At COVID, during COVID, mm. they didn't, they couldn't do that. They just simply could not. Correct. And so, um, you know, my dad went through hospice and about two days later after being released from hospice, he had a rally then meaning he like he his color came back he was coherent they took him off of hospice which was normal and then 2 days later he died and i don't i feel like somewhat to a certain extent it was kind of divine planning because after about 6 months of like navigating grief and you know trying to figure out what do i do next this thing kept popping up in my email about being a death doula and I'm not even sure how it happened, to be honest with you. And I thought, well, I'm an external processor when it comes to healing and like figuring out problems and education. So I thought, at the very least, maybe this will help me f- figure out what I need to know, what I didn't need, that I didn't need to know, or that I didn't know. And that, you know, there's many of, there's many people like me who are kind of of that sandwich generation. So, um, people between like their late 30s to mid 50s who are caring both for children and for parents or aging folks. Um, and I knew that if I could just be a resource to someone else, like that was worth it. And the more that I get into the education and the case studies and working with families to get certified, the more I felt like, wow, this is like the next evolution of the work I do on this earth. I would imagine on one hand, you're dealing with something that's universal. Mm-hmm. None of us will escape death. But on the other hand, we all, every death is different. Every family is different. Every person grieves differently. Mm-hmm. So I imagine there's both this universality and this complete originality to every client. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every, and I think that's part of what I love about it too is um, one, I don't know what to expect every time. And each person's experience is so different. Um, there's some people who are ready, who are good to go, and then some we have to have the difficult conversations with the family members, or the family members actually has to have the conversation with the person that's done. You know, every every situation is is unique in the fact of like the mindset of what we do or don't do. Um, even like from a spiritual or non-spiritual perspective, like how do we find meaning in that death as well? And I think 
you know, we talk, there's a lot of talk about the quote stages of grief, which Mm -hmm. is not, it's phases of grief. And so part of that doulas experience is to come in and talk about like, while your unique, your experience is unique, we all have grief. We all have these different phases and waves of grief that we experience. And so like that education is so important. A person can think they're not grieving correctly or enough (laughs) or outwardly, you know, expressing enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, that can really, when you go through the death of a very close one, you think, am I doing this right? Mm -hmm. Which sounds odd. Yeah. Well, as a society, we don't do death and grief very well. Um, And it's something that we have avoided. And um, there's there's so much education that's out there. It's so overwhelming. And we are a society that doesn't like to talk about that kind of vulnerability, mm-hmm. um, such as grief. How does it work when someone contacts you? Mm-hmm. I, now, it could be the person who is nearing the end of their own life. It could be a family member. It could be a caregiver, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have a standard? Do you ask questions? How do you, how do you, what's that initial client meeting like? Yeah. So it, yeah, it can be any one of those individuals. Majority of the time, it's usually the family of the um, dying person. Um, however, so we just kind of first talk about what is the illness? What, you know, what is the medical care team? What's your um, care team look like? Many of the times hospice is already involved or has already started to have the conversation, which is usually the first thing that I recommend is go talk to your hospice folks first. Um, And then from there, we just talk about what is it that you need as the individual who's dying? Like what kind of support do you need? Sometimes they have no idea. Mm -hmm. And so we just kind of give a little education of, you know, here's how I can support you. How does that sound? With the caregiver and or family, which tends to sometimes be one in the same, we just talk about what do you need in order for you to care for yourself as well as care for the individual. Um, what, How do you envision support looking like? Um, if you could wave the magic wand and you had somebody available to you and time, resources, and energy were all available, what would that look like for someone to step in and to support you now and then you know, within six months after the passing. It sounds like to me that you're making sure you are not ever, as you mentioned, you're not medical. You're not helping with that. Mm-hmm. You're, you you encourage to talk to hospice first. You're not trying to take anyone's place. Correct. You're there as an additional resource. Yeah, we fill in, we fill in the gaps. Um, you know, with hospice, they're only given so much time and they only have so many people <laughs> to do like to be a support, even from a volunteer basis. I've volunteered for two years with uh, local hospice, and we're always looking for volunteers um, because there's just there's the demand is so much greater than what's available, and the doula comes in and fills in the gap between all of that. We can be readily available, whereas not all the time can a hospice nurse or their care team are able to do that. They also don't have the capacity to be able to sit down with the families and really take the time to create those legacy projects, to talk, to have like mediation conversations of like one client I had, you know, he wanted to make sure that his um, daughter, that he could have the conversations with his daughters that he'd been meaning to have for 10, 15 years. And so here I can come in and be the liaison and create a safe space 
for those, you know, three individuals to have a conversations. And so our role is to fill in the gaps and provide support while encouraging all the other resources available to that person. The name of your firm is? Mysteria. Where did it come from? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So um, so the Spanish version, you know, like Spanish means misery. However, where it came from was actually there's a Greek goddess that her role was to come in and pour into the people who experience deep grief and loss. Mm. And so we kind of took the root word of those two things, and, and that's where Mysteria came in from. I think a lot of us who've gone through the death of a close uh, – of a loved one – might hear this and go, well, I'm not sure I had enough for the death doula to do. Maybe all I wanted to do was talk one time. Mm -hmm. Is that something you might? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what I have found with end-of-life doulas is that there's a serv- there's a heart of service. And so, yeah, maybe it's just I want to have a conversation about what is it that I need to do? What are the questions I need to ask? Um, so, you know, sometimes those are complementary. Sometimes it, there is a cost to it. Um, but I feel like that initial conversation oftentimes is enough to say maybe I don't need one right now, but maybe one in the future. Have you thought any differently about mortality, specifically your own mortality (laughs) since taking this on? Yes. Yeah. I have found, one, uh, my self-care has had to double. Mm. So I've had to ensure that self-care is primary, where in my previous career life, that was just not, like, it was way down at the bottom of the I thought you were in HR. I would think that that would have meant a lot of self-care. Well, you'd you'd think so, because we would preach that, but... Okay. All right. (laughs) Not so much the case. Um, So one is that self-care, and two, I I have discovered, both through the death of my dad and through this work, who my people are, and um how do i how do i want to spend my time and so part of what i have really loved about this work is that i get to do that i get to make the choice to do that um and i find myself not caring as much about things that used to be so important as well um and i've slowed down and i've really enjoyed like i mean just simple things like today just taking a walk while it's even cold outside but i'm enjoying the way the cold feels on my skin, the way the sun feels on my body. And prior to that, that might not be something I would just consciously make an effort to do. Allison Nail Malone is a death doula and the owner of Miseria. You can find out more at mymiseria.com. That's spelled M-I-S-E-R-I-A. This is Ozarks at Large. Walton Arts Center is proud to present the 2023-24 Procter & Gamble Broadway series, including the Arkansas premiere of Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, plus Jagged Little Pill, Disney's Aladdin, and more. Subscriptions on sale now, and subscribers get early access, discounted tickets, and other benefits. More information at waltonartscenter.org. KUAF is supported by Gotta Hold Brewing in Eureka Springs. Off the beaten path, but welcoming all ages and even dogs with a beer forest, twisted taco food truck, just be coffee bar, and activities including games, live music, and a one-mile hiking trail. 409 West Van Buren in Eureka Springs. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Here's something that's not news. 
Northwest Arkansas continues to grow. Making sure the growth is smart and equitable is a challenge for any growing community. This week's episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas with Randy Wilburn considers present and future growth for Northwest Arkansas. Randy sat down with urban planner Victor Dover. Dover's vision can be seen in communities on five continents and in many textbooks about city planning. During their conversation, Dover told Randy Wilburn that at its best, Northwest Arkansas can be an example of the second coming of the great American small town. Because I remember 20, 25 years ago when the Bentonville Square was kind of threadbare and lonely, and there wasn't a lot going on in the heart of town here. Beautiful historic buildings, but some of them boarded up. And now look at the place that's here, the level of reinvestment, of turning the lights back on, of kind of getting back in touch with public space and with coming together in community. It's on display in Bentonville. Well, it's on display in Fayetteville. It's, you know, it, it goes throughout this region. It's on display in downtown Siloam Springs. Yeah. And so in a way, in this period of incredible prosperity, what I would say to you in Northwest Arkansas is that the pressure's on a little bit because the whole country... <laughs> He's watching you to see how you deal with that prosperity. What do you do with it? Yeah. And I think you use the word placemaking. I think you are doing a better job than a lot of local folks might give themselves credit for. Sure. Of course, the bar must be raised. Yeah. And more must be done. But you're ahead of the curve on regulatory reform. You're having hard conversations about housing and transportation that other places in the Sun Belt are not even started having yet. Yeah. And you've been working on them for a while. So- you should take some encouragement from seeing the comeback of these cities. There's also the development at the edge, which has been largely forgettable. You know, sprawl development, a kind of thin gruel of asphalt and and uh, low flat buildings set sure. far apart. And when it is occasionally denser, like the garden apartment complexes with the chain link fences around them, well, you think, well, that's evidence that growth and change made things worse rather than better. So I think you're right to question whether in the new development, you can get as good at it as the grandparents and great-grandparents were here in years past. Yeah. And you know, and it's funny because even I live in Fayetteville and of course, when we talk about Northwest Arkansas, you mentioned Siloam, we've got Eureka Springs, you have all these outlying areas that are actually part of the envelope of Northwest Arkansas. And then you've got Fayetteville, Springdale, Rogers and Bentonville, that major artery there. And there's so many opportunities to grow, but there has to be a different thinking that takes place. And one of the things that you said in your presentation that really stood out to me was that 22% of the land in Northwest Arkansas is devoted to commercial building. Commercial zoning. Commercial zoning, the, right. That's the remnant commercial only in most cases. Right. There are a few places where it's zoned for highway commercial, but you could jam in residential if you wanted to. Sure. And that number, that percentage doesn't include the great old main streets or the old traditionally mixed use parts of town Okay, that are coming back. Like in Rogers, for example, where the main street is on a comeback curve. Yeah. Yeah. Downtown um, Rogers is amazing. So yeah, it's a very large number. And with, you know, we're living through a great national retail real estate meltdown before COVID that was already true. And then with, with the changing habits of not just where people work, but how they buy things, that will probably continue to put pressure on the owners of that land to think of more creative ways to use it. And so my message was, if you're trying to figure out and you're scratching your heads, trying to figure out where there's room to build to solve the housing problem, the answer is some of this land that's thought of as good for nothing but Taco Bell and and the like could in fact be housing land. And that is a tall order because it requires all those corridors, everyone to work together. You can't do it without the Department of Transportation and the Department of Public Works reconceiving the very idea of that street that those 
properties are along, not no longer a highway for high speed movement, but really a neighborhood, a part of a main neighborhood and has to be reimagined as a street you'd be willing to live near. So that's just an example of the kind of great private public partnership that all development is. Yeah. You know, I, I remember a while back and I can't remember the episode, but I interviewed Wes Craiglow, who is the Urban Land Institute director for Northwest Arkansas. And he said very succinctly to me that, you know, that there wasn't really an issue with um, the ability to do infill building in Northwest Arkansas. It's whether or not we have the appetite mm-hmm. to do that. Or the good habits. That or the good habits. Like it, yeah. yeah. And I think that's important. And so if anybody that's listening to this, whether they're an elected official, a planner, an engineer of sorts, or even an architect, or just you know somebody that lives in this community, how should we be thinking about what we hope to see in the next 10, 15, 20 years as this area doubles in size from a population standpoint? Well, with the pressure on housing and the fact that your the cost of housing, whether you're owning or renting, is rising faster than incomes, yeah. even in a place with runaway income growth yeah. by a national comparison. Mm-hmm. So when you're dealing with that, you have to realize that you're not going to get ahead of it without building some. You have to build your way out of that problem. Well, what if every time someone put one brick on top of another or nailed two boards together, they increased your level of confidence that growth could be a good thing? Yeah. Instead of decreasing it. This is why design matters so much. You've got to create places that are satisfying these basic utilitarian needs. We all need shelter. We all need places to eat. We need places to work. But we need places to school our kids and throw a Frisbee to the dog. We need all these things. But instead of just checking the box for that utilitarian need, what if we were making it more wonderful as we did it? Yeah. Literally building your way out of your problems. I think that is the challenge for Northwest Arkansas. Of course, the appetite can be questioned for, you know, living in a place that doesn't feel like a neighborhood. Right. You know, who wants to live in a bland apartment complex in the parking lot of the office park. No personality. Uh, nobody wants to live there. So, so question, you know, the consumer demand is, or, or appetite may not be the problem. First of all, we have a lot of really eager consumers who only have limited amount of money to spend and are looking for something, anything that's closer to work than where they, where they are now. And they're coming here in such large numbers that the power of large numbers will mean if you build it, you can rent it, you can sell it. So that wasn't always true. Yeah. You know, a hundred years ago, apple orchards and, and not very many people around. And the place had to find these new late 20th century, early 21st century economic reasons for being. And it found them partly because of the leadership of the Northwest Arkansas Council uh, were clever about that. But all those the combination of factors means that you now know you have on paper a big statistical demand and a pretty wide tolerance. But the decisions about what to build on the land is often not made by the consumer. Yeah. It's made by the developer, the banker, the realtor, the seller, by the planning board, planning commission members, by the planning director, by, you know, by elected officials from a zoning hearing. And it's all very abstract. You're not really talking to the person who's going to live in that neighborhood ultimately when it's built up. You're talking to a middleman, middle people. Sure. So the appetite that really needs to be plumbed, I think, here is the willingness on the part of those investors, land developers, principal among them, but also the engineers and the architects and landscape architects that work with them, the real estate brokers. All those professionals have to relearn how to do it in order to build great, walkable, beautiful neighborhoods. Yeah. And when they do, there's usually a big win in it for them. 
Victor Dover is an urban planner and the guest on the latest episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas, produced and hosted by Randy Wilburn. You can hear their entire conversation by finding the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast wherever you get podcasts. You can also go to IamNorthwestArkansas.com. A new episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas drops every Monday morning, and we have an excerpt every Tuesday on Ozarks at Large. This is KUAF. Every day on KUAF, you get vetted and fact-based news stories produced and prepared by journalists committed to serving their community. We also bring you breaking news when it happens with real-time analysis from NPR. When there is a breaking or ongoing news story, KUAF is committed to bringing you that information. You count on us to make sure you're informed about big stories like election results, Supreme Court hearings, presidential speeches, and more. And we count on you to help us bring you these big stories. Keep listening and do your part to help pay for what you're listening to. You can give now at supportkuaf.com or mail a check to KUAF at 9 South School Avenue, Fayetteville, Arkansas, 72701. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, the musical duo Shore and Cockrum return to our Furman Garner Performance Studio. Music and news tomorrow on Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. You can also ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large to hear the most recent episode. The Momentary in Bentonville presents three-time Grammy Award-winning hip-hop group The Roots, live and in person, outdoors on the Momentary Green, April 29th. The band has been hailed by Rolling Stone as one of the greatest live acts in the world. Tickets on sale now at themomentary.org. KUAF is supported by Dr. Kathleen Wong, a psychiatrist providing infusion therapy for treatment of depression and anxiety disorders. Following NIMH protocol, studies show ketamine infusion therapy can reduce suicidal ideation and is an effective alternative when other treatments fail. drkathleenwong.com for more information. This is Ozarks at Large with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, Robert Bishop. Hey, hey. Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Hi there. Hello. Thank you both for doing this. Uh, We're going to continue our effort because there's so much that comes at us streaming, podcast, music streaming, that it's hard to keep up. And every so often, we're asking folks who work here who really sort of ingest things to offer some recommendations. So last time we had uh, Brett Ratliff, our membership director, and we had Matthew Moore, producer. Robert, you uh, host and produce many of the vinyl hours. Mm-hmm. You're you can do almost anything, I think. Yeah, some some would say that. I sure. would say yeah. that. Rachel, you're a producer and reporter for Ozarks at Large. So I asked you to come up with some recommendations. Rachel, I'm going to start with you. What are you going to recommend for us? All right. So my recommendation is based a little bit on I've been doing a lot of shopping lately, um, especially I've been, you know, considering all, you know, prices of, of food going up. Uh-huh. I've been on the search for the cheapest place to get my groceries ah. or to get food. Um, and one thing, one recommendation that I have is, I mean, of course, we all know some of the more local supermarkets sometimes have deals on stuff. For me, there's one store that I've been going to a lot lately, and I went there growing up a lot. Um, it's called La Estrella. It's in um, in Rogers, and it's this Hispanic supermarket. It's not huge, um, but a lot of mar- like supermarkets that are similar to it, 
I mean, Kyle, they really have like the best deals on produce. Cheap stuff. Um, one thing you can get like 10 limes for a dollar, uh, something that wouldn't even be like <laughs> thinkable really? at some other places. And yeah, and so I mean, it depends on what kind of produce and stuff you're getting, but some some pretty awesome deals. So you mentioned that it's less expensive. Are there also some items that I might not be able to find at other grocery stores? Oh, 100%. Some things that come to mind immediately is if you're looking for new candy to try, there's a lot of like Mexican-based candy Mm. that's, if you like spicy and you like sweet, something that converges on the middle of those two roads, Mm there will be something there. And a lot of of basics too, just um, different types of flour. If you like Orchata, those kinds of drinks. There's a lot of like pre-made stuff that'll give you some pretty interesting finds. All right. As you know, I am not bilingual. I am monolingual. Grew up in a very homogenous small town in the north central Arkansas Ozarks. I can walk in and know what I'm doing? Yeah. Yeah, you will. Um, Everything is um, usually bilingual. Everything will be in English and Spanish. And it's kind of interesting to see the folks that come in there. It's somewhere that I've gone consistently growing up and seeing, um, despite all the differences, language, cultural, everything, everybody is on board with cheap prices (laughs) and especially cheap prices for limes. (laughs) And what is the name again? It's called La Estrella Supermarket. It's in Rogers. All right. Excellent. Robert, what you got for us? Well, I'm going to kind of continue the food talk. Excellent. And, you know, my recommendation isn't isn't anything new, but um, it's kind of trying to use, I guess, TikTok as um, a way to learn how to cook a little bit better. Um, I, like a lot of people, you know, I can stare at TikTok for like six hours. Right. But um, I've started to build up categories of, of things that are a little more educational. And so my, the biggest one with like hundreds of videos is just food. And so I've started following these people that are making food that I don't necessarily like. Um, like there's this one girl and it's called Julia Snacks. S-N-A-C-K-S. Yes. Okay. And her thing is she's like, I, I'm going to make cabbage, rice, and beans cool. Oh, and, you know, nobody really is like, man, I can't wait to have a big plate of cabbage, rice, and beans. But I've made some of her recipes, and I've been eating it all week. And it's really it's really simple stuff. And, and watching someone do it, I think a lot of people, especially when it comes to cooking, are visual learners. Oh, yeah. You, you have to be there with somebody. Well, it's security, too, right? You can yeah. read a recipe, and it may have a term. I remember the first time I came across browning something it's like sure it was just written there like i knew what i was supposed to do and i I don't know what browning means yeah i didn't then anyway and i think you know in in many ways i think tiktok has kind of revolutionized how we um digest media and now it's really concise short video format editing's really quick um and i think that's really helpful because you can get an entire recipe really quick so when you say short how because in my head, I'm still thinking of Vine, which was 15 seconds or less. Sure. Obviously, TikTok videos can be longer than that. Yeah, I think now they can be upwards of like a few minutes. Okay. I'm not really sure. But most of the, f- the food ones, usually they'll say, we're going to make this. And then it's kind of just quick cuts or they'll put the, um, you know, the measurements and whatever on the screen and you pause it and keep going. Wow. 
Yeah. And I have such a short attention span that if you can grab, if you can tell me how to make this recipe and you can show me in like a minute or less, I'm sold. Yeah, that's the other I'm thing. Sold. It's like a lot of us, you know, I've got ADHD. And so when I'm reading, I immediately start to wonder. Mm-hmm. And I have to keep going back and going back and having it right there in like this little video all the time. And it's got me out of my comfort zone. And so normally I tend to make very heavy Southern food. Um, but now I'm making salads and now I'm, I'm making, you know, rice and beans and things, you know? How would, let's say you're either on TikTok and you haven't really narrowed it, you know, curated it to be food or sure. you haven't gotten a TikTok. What's the way to get started? Do you, is there a search engine that you can just say food or? Yeah. So you can search for whatever there, you know, there's just a little search bar and you can type in, um, you know, bread and they do it by likes or by, I think, I think likes. Um, And so the top ones will be at the top and it'll go down. Um, And once you like a few things, the algorithm is really intelligent and it'll pick up. (laughs) Almost too intelligent. (laughs) And then you'll just start getting people in your feed and so I had this woman a while back. She was like, this is my mom's peasant bread, and it's really easy. And I was in bed, and I, I was like, I want bread tomorrow. And I got out of bed, went in the kitchen, and made it in like 10 minutes. And then, I, you know, you just let it sit overnight, mm-hmm. and then you bake it. And it's like. That is awesome. So what we can do is go to, what, what was her name again, Janet? Oh, uh, it's Julie Snacks. Julie, we'll go to yeah. Julie Snacks, find out about cabbage. Rice, Rice and, beans. and beans, and then go buy it in Rogers. Yes. yes. There's also, I wanted to shout out a few sure. other local um, supermarkets that I think are doing an awesome job and also have just a different kind of set of ingredients and products that you don't usually see in like a Walmart or Harps or right. something. Um, Asian Amigo is one. They're a longtime favorite. Um, they sell like dragon fruit and it's really cheap and it's awesome. Lo- also a lot of like frozen products there um, that you wouldn't normally get. A lot of cheap seafood. Um, Asian Amigos and Spring. Asian Amigos and Springdale. Springdale, right. Yes. Thank you. Rachel, Robert, appreciate your time. Thank you for having us. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Natural Dam. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Contributors included Anna Pope, Randy Wilburn, Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Robert Bishop, and Josie Lenora. Additional help for today's show came from the respective staffs at Talk Business and Politics and KUAR in Little Rock. Tomorrow, speaking of podcasts, Mm -hmm. we have today um, the next episode of Undisciplined. Yep, yep. The next episode of Undisciplined is going to air tomorrow. We'll have an excerpt of it on uh, Ozarks at Large tomorrow. We're talking to uh, a professor about prisons. Mm. Um, We we recorded this conversation actually in 2022, um, but it feels like a very... uh, uh, Timely? Timely conversation, certainly. Talking about the uh, the prison pipeline, the school-to-prison pipeline, talking about the history of that, especially in black communities. Um, really interesting and engaging conversation. Um, so, yeah, that's going to be on tomorrow's show. 
excerpt on tomorrow's show. The full episode will be available wherever you get podcasts. Also, I was talking with Daniel Carruth, who's in the Karen Taha News Studio. He produces the podcast um, Points of Departure. Yes. I think there's a new one dropping today or tomorrow with mm-hmm. that as well. Yeah. Yep. Plenty of podcasts to listen to. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate. Oh, I've already said all that. It's true. You did. And you produced that. I did. Okay. Um, <laughs> Kyle. Yes. Yesterday we oh, we yes. teased yes. that we were going to announce uh, the winners of the KUAF Bragging Rights Tournament. We can, we can announce the winners pre-Final Four <laughs> because none of us Nobody. had anybody in the Final Four. Yeah, it's true. I think we had 10 brackets and nobody, and nobody had a single team. We can't be the only office that that says that right because it's just a refreshing mix of with UConn maybe yeah. there were people who were on UConn but other than that yeah no Duke no North Carolina no Kansas no Gonzaga no Kentucky right um, no Alabama you know a lot of no teams. Purdue <laughs> my pick to win it all who went out on day two yes um, so anyway so so we said that we were going to announce. Uh, the the top bracket yes but because it's bragging rights we also have to announce the worst bracket uh, I'm not sure we have to but well, uh, you're going we're, to. we're going okay. to okay absolutely so right. coming in first place uh-huh. is our very own Kyle Kellums Kyle Kellums actually tied for first place um, with Brett Harrelson who is a student at the U of A who works with us at the front desk yeah the two of them uh, tied for first place and as we looked over their brackets. There really isn't a decision either one of them could have made differently to have won. Right. Um, I will. I think there was some some colluding happening here. <laughs> I will tip my hat to the San Diego State Aztecs, who I had going into the Elite Eight. Uh huh. I got points there. I also believed in Kansas State. Yep. But I didn't believe in others. So. Yeah. And Purdue and Kansas were in my final. So I thought I was gone. Yeah. But. Well, I think most people did. Yeah. In fact, um, in last place is my neighbor. Just one uh, office over, mm-hmm. Ryan Versi. He had the Hogs winning it all, didn't he? He did, and he he did say to me beforehand, this was the first bracket he had ever done in his life. Oh wow! Um, so you know, I think my first bracket was also pretty terrible. In in his defense, I came in third to last, and mm-hmm. I've done more than a few brackets <laughs> in my life. So right, there you well, go. Congratulations to Kyle well, and Brett. What what do we get? Oh, bragging I, rights. I just bragged. Yes. Okay. Very good. All right. Hey. Thanks so much for listening. We're back tomorrow at noon and 7.